Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, what is astonishing you? I have received over the past two weeks, two invitations to preach revival services this fall. Mm-hmm. And I was sharing that with a member of our church community. And the first question, the first thing that came out of their mouth was, why are they inviting you? (laughs) Now, this person asked, not with disrespect, but with genuine curiosity, like, why, why would they ask you to do this? Why would they ask you to do this? And I I knew that they were not being disrespectful. So, you know, at first I just made a joke. It's like, well, I think what's happened is that these congregations have started to run out of money and they couldn't get the person that they wanted. So they asked me. Uh, So, you know, we laughed a little bit about that. But um, so I've said yes to both invitations and I and I get these invitations from time to time. And normally I say no. Yeah, that's the difference between you and me. (laughs) I know all the time. Like 90% of the invitations that I get to speak or preach outside of the Derrida Church congregation, I say no, because honestly, I don't like public speaking. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's odd for a preacher to say, but when I was called to ministry, my, my vision was that I was going to the monastery. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to a place where there's lots of silence. You know, sign me up. I, I, I'm in silence. I pray. I study. I have this community that's doing the same. Sign me up for the monastery. Ultimately, the Lord did not call me to the monastery. He called me to the local congregation to preach. And it is challenging for me as someone who... It's just to the core of my soul. Like, I really am an introverted person. Every Sunday, I get butterflies. I've been doing this for 25 years. There are Sundays I just want to throw up. I'm so nervous. I wouldn't do anything else. I love it. I love this ministry life. But recently, our friend and brother and colleague, Albert Moses, called me. And, you know, he is... He's, he's about to retire, and he called me, and he said, you know, you're that guy now. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, you're, you're, you're that guy. He's like, you have been in this city for 20-plus years. When you came, you were the youngest pastor in the room, and now folks older than you have or are retiring, and so you're becoming the one that has to be out there mentor those pastors who are coming up. You, you need to be more visible. And I thought at first I said, no, you're whatever. I've got a lot of work to do in my local congregation. But as I thought about it, as I prayed about it, I thought, yeah, that's right. And here's what is astonishing me. I'm finally getting to it. I'm astonished by looking back, just retrospect my life, how the Lord really does change you. How this th- this discipleship life, how this preaching life, this ministry life really does shape 
a mm-hmm. soul. Like it is true. We are clay in the hands of our creator. We are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And it is not, not just for a preacher, but for all of us who follow Jesus Christ, it is astonishing to stop and look back over our lives and see the ways, not how we have changed ourselves, but how God has truly done a work on the inside of us. Because again, not my first priority to say yes to every speaking engagement. Well, I have three thoughts. First of all, it is my priority to say yes to every speaking engagement. Please invite me to preach at your garage sale. I will come. Um, at the garage not sale? Even, not even joking. Um, but the second thing, flippantly, is that I just, it's so funny. Like, I, I hate how recently my deepest, tenderest emotional experiences are literal cliches, right? Because <laughs> like, I look back and when I was the youngest person in the room and, you know, because of just the lack of popularity of being pastors in these days, I'm, that being the youngest person in the room lasted a long time. And I really... And I really resented it, right? Like I, I just felt like it was something that I was so eager to overcome. And, you know, you can quote Jeremiah all you want, but when you are the youngest person in the room as pastor, you just have the sense that you, you have no impact. You have nothing to, no one, no one, you have nothing to offer until you get older because people see your age instead of anything else. And so I was so you know, I, I experienced myself as just being so handy, so, so impeded by my youth <laughs> back. And I'm just like, oh, I, I had it I had it so good for so long. And here comes the cliche, youth is wasted on the young, right? Like, it's just, ugh, because um, it's just so true, um, you know, Very. because I, anyway. And, and the third thing is, I, you know, I think that's a really helpful um thing to talk about just being shaped because of course it's not just true for pastors um, and it's not just true for people of faith I mean we all in in as much as we live in a self-help culture we all are being passively shaped and by passive I don't I I mean like be sometimes beyond our intentionality um, by the culture that we choose to participate in by kind of just what we, what we read and and who we're around. And, uh, you know, I think we all say to our teenagers, like, be careful how you pick your friends because blah, blah, blah. And I think, you know, it's really important just to think about the fact that we are all being shaped all the time. And I think you, you hit middle age and you sort of believe and the world can sometimes tell you, oh, you, you have become the definitive version of yourself. And now you will just stay that way forever and it's not true. We're, we're being shaped all the time. And so if we have this self-image that we have certain values or that we have certain practices, you know, it's, it's easy not to notice the way that thinking we hold certain values becomes a substitute from actually um, making decisions and choices based on those values. And um, how how easy it is to get into a community or, or um, 
you know, where certain things are just placed at a higher priority than what you would say with authenticity is are your core beliefs, but but it's just normal and everyone else is doing it. And so you think like, well, even though I'm, you know, maybe making choices that I as a younger person wouldn't have made, well, now I know that, you know, just because I, you know, just just because I talk this way or, or, you know, just because I don't object at these jokes or just because I don't, you know, participate in certain communities, events or worship, like I'm still all, all the person that I, you know, believe that I am and the, we're being shaped all the time. And I think it's both like wonderful news and terrible news because we can both get so discouraged at our lack of spiritual growth Um when we're trying to grow, we can get so discouraged and sort of feeling stuck and not recognize that imperceptibly we have been, we have been growing. We have been moving. The Lord has been dragging us. I mean, and, and so wanting to be really intentional about not assuming that, just not assuming that we're on the Lord's side, um, but, but continually seeking, um, which is one thing I love, um, surprisingly, I think to some people about aspects of the aspect of reformed worship of being, um, look at me talking like a Presbyterian. Um, but uh, that's what I love about the practice of confession each week in worship, because, you know, it's just built into our, um, life with the Lord of not assuming that I'm good and that sin is somebody else's problem and that I've grown beyond that. And but to really, you know, find that balance of not living like a sinner in the hands of an angry God, right? Like not seeing yourself as the spider in the web about to be extinguished by God's righteous wrath. Like that's not healthy, but also not living smug, right? Like having a real sense, like I think people in recovery do, that that sin is always going to be a factor in your life and it's insidious and it does not have to define you or control you, but you will not spontaneously become sober and you will not spontaneously and effortlessly live a righteous life. Like you will have to work it out, walk it out with fear and trembling every day um, and, and trusting in the grace of God and not some sort of objective status that you achieved at some point in the past and now you're done forever like the the devil's too good at his job (laughs) Um, and this life of faith is just you know every time we get to a place the lord calls us in deeper and so to refuse to grow deeper is to turn away yeah and a real flattened version of christianity says yes I I will change. I will be different. I will transform. But after I die, sometime, you know, right. right? Or or I will be different and change and transform at a certain series of my life. But then I'll arrive. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think, yeah. I mean, this idea of saying like I I am not yet. I'm I am genuinely not who I used to be, and I am not yet who I am becoming. And I. I am open and participate, trying to be open and vulnerable to the grace of God, not just in everybody else's life, but in my life too. Yeah. And there's both joy and hard work. Right. And I, you know, we've been preaching through Hebrews and I think that's the, the thing with chapter 11 is just this idea that, 
this was a community that really had had a dramatic transformation moment and, and had gone through a lot and had made lots of sacrifices and were living radical countercultural lives and then sort of had this expectation that there was going to come a point where it would get easier. <laughs> and I, I don't believe that the Lord is calling us to a life of misery at all. Um, but I don't think it gets easier. Um, yeah, I think of Paul's words. Um, I have not already achieved the goal, so mm -hmm. I press on toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul didn't just look back and be like, well, I used to be Saul, so no. I have changed <laughs> enough for a lifetime. I, you know, I'm I mean, good. and his motivation wasn't to earn some sort of favored status. I mean, his motivation was to be part of what the Lord was doing in the world. And his greatest joy was to have the approval of God not just once and for all, but day by day. Like that's, I think that's really coming alive in Christ is recognizing that I don't, I don't have to earn the Lord's approval, but I, but I want to please the Lord. <laughs> um, and that kind of healing, I think really does take a lifetime to live into. Um, so anyway, I just, yeah, I think that's really cool. I wonder if the Lord will make me an introvert. <laughs> JK, JK. I, see, this is what makes you such a good introvert. You're just not even, like I have set a trap and you're just not even walking into it. There's so many things I can see on your face that you would like to say, and yet you're too wise. And I will simply say, you don't have to become an introvert because I'm not going to become an extrovert. <laughs> I think what God does is take your good wiring and just expand it. No, so, well you know. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny though, my... Uh, my spouse was talking to one of my kids and she was talking about feeling exhausted and and he sort of said, you know, you're an introvert. <laughs> she's like explaining this concept to her for the first time. And I know she's definitely on your team, but it was just I think it was really hard. Anyway, sorry. I don't I I do not be want to be the one who talks about introversion and extroversion on this podcast all the time. That is your lane. I'm ceding it back to you. It's all good. Um, so what is astonishing you? Well, I listen. I'm in a weird space and I'm just letting. I'm, okay. You I'm, have my attention. Well, no, I'm just saying like, I, I really do think, as I've said lots of times on this podcast before that there's a, there's a spiritual discipline about choosing to seek out what's astonishing you. Um, and so I really do want to, my, my intention is to notice and revel and celebrate and not take for granted what is good and beautiful in our congregations and in this life, but particularly in the church life. And, and it's easy to be overwhelmed by the challenges and, you know, so just it's an act of spiritual resistance. And I really want to talk about what's astonishing me in a good way. And yet I'm not going to do that today <laughs> um, because I'm in a weird space. Um, what has been astonishing me What uh, is this whole situation with, I can't believe, two weeks in a row, with the um, world, the Women's World Cup and Spain went, winning the World's Cup and the World Cup. And I mean, obviously not a, not a fan, not a football fan of any kind, not a sports person. But the, for those of you in my camp who don't know, the World Cup happened and the Spanish women's team won. And it was a big deal because I, I think they've not, I think they've won before, but it was 
decades ago. And obviously that's just a pinnacle moment for everyone involved with the organization. Um, and also I know this from watching last week tonight, FIFA, which is the organization, International Football Federation, is notoriously awful and corrupt. Um, and in the moments, the, the very moments after the game, there was a lot of celebration and they were doing these ceremonial presentations of the medals or the trophies or whatever. And um, there was a moment where the president of the Spanish team, some kind of administrator of the Spanish team, grabbed the star player. Do you not know about this? No. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, well, I grabbed this the star player um jenny hermoso hermoso hermosa and and kissed her like like grat like took both sides of her face brought her face to his face and and kissed her and it was like obviously it was on camera and it was such that even in like spanish culture i think has and i've read about this and heard stories about it recently like there's kind of a culture that people other than me would describe as machismo like leftover from Franco, like just this idea that, you know, men should be men and women should be women. And a lot of um, just like discrimination was really codified in the law and people have been working really hard to kind of look at these cultural norms um, and, and interrogate them from a justice and equity lens. But I mean, there, there's a lot of um, just like grabbing and kissing that happen in I mean first of all everywhere but particularly in Spain all the time because it's not as frown it's just more quote normal um there than it is here and in other places and but but even in Spain people were like oh this is creepy because this guy is her boss and like it's on television and it's just real and like you can just see that she is rigid and he just and so then there's this big furor about it afterwards and on the one hand it's great that people are saying hey that's not right on the other hand like it's devastating that these women have just won the world cup and then the only thing that anybody wants to talk about is like this kiss and was it or was not consensual and like what kind of discipline and like he um he his name is Luis Rubioso and he like initially like kind of apologized but also said he didn't do anything wrong and then since then has like really doubled down and said that the kiss was consensual and it was 100% non-sexual and that it's a witch hunt and that he's the victim and then you know she has had to just sort of like navigate all this like she doesn't like she just did this pinnacle achievement of her athletic career and she was apparently like an amazing player and really you know helped make the victory happen and and now she has to decide like okay so am I going to be the victim who was sexually assaulted on television by this guy or am I going to say like oh no it doesn't matter let's just go back to the achievement and she's stuck in this like terrible like lose-lose situation right because I'm sure she doesn't want to think or talk about it at all but but if you don't if you don't then you're basically have to like co-sign on the narrative of like yes I wanted this creepy old man to kiss me on the lips um or or if you then want to say like no like I was actually literally in my uniform doing my job I did not want to you know and it's just and I, I mean it has just I mean it has resonated deeply with me just because I think every woman I know, they're just these situations where there's physical contact that 
you just don't want. And when it happens, you have to make these like split second decisions about like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to like, are you going to make a scene about it? Are you just going to be like, okay, whatever, it just is what it is. And I want to go on and live my life and not focus on it. And, and so that's just a really, um, I think, ubiquitous experience for, for women. And also, um, and you know that if you make a big deal about it, it will immediately swing back on you, right? Like it's your fault that you are the person who is making it awkward and you're like this guy, this person is a nice guy and you didn't mean it. And why are you trying to ruin his life? And now nobody can talk to anybody. And this is why, but, but, but then the other thing that I think is interesting is as this has played out over the couple of weeks, like he has really doubled down. And, and I think it's been really astonishing that his defense is it was consensual. And so I think it is just a really um, astonishing in a terrible way that there is a person in a position of power and authority who literally, not just proclaimed, but I think believes that because he consented to this physical contact that she did too, right? That his worldview is just that I think this is appropriate, therefore is appropriate. And I have this conversation, not infrequently, mostly with women, not always about physical encounters, but sometimes just about, you know, being in an interaction with someone and saying, essentially, this is my experience. And the other person being like, no, it's not, or you're wrong about your experience. And I just think, you know, the reality is, it is ludicrous on the face of it for one person to definitively declare that another person gave consent to contact when the other person is literally standing in front of them saying, A, no, I didn't. And B, I mean, it was on film. <laughs> I mean, you can see like he grabbed her and kissed her. And I think probably what he is saying, like, well, in the context of the moment, that was an appropriate action because I'm a powerful person and I said it was. And I think like this is just the big problem. And I think it's astonishing that we have to do so much work just to be able to definitively declare that we do not get to tell other people what the inside of their head is like. And like there's so little that certain marginalized groups are allowed to own or control, but like you get to say whether or not you wanted to be kissed, which she said, like from the jump, I did not want this guy to kiss me. I mean, and she had this, like either she could have shoved him off of her on the podium, like literally started fighting with, him. I mean, like it's just, but I, I just think that, um, it is a really interesting thing to think about for people trying to live in a reconciled community and trying to be in a healthy and holy multi-ethnic and multi multicultural congregation that, you know, that dude is coming out of a culture where it is appropriate for men to grab women and kiss them if they want to, right? Like that's just, that is his authentic culture. Those are his authentic beliefs. But that does not mean that he's not responsible for his actions. And I think when we have certain cultural norms that really are 
are are constructed upon the assumption that other people's bodies to a point belong to us that just needs to be named and called out and you can't be in a healthy community with someone if you're saying well I want to be in community with you but only if I am still allowed to do everything that feels appropriate to me regardless of how you feel about it because I mean whatever people can do whatever they want in the sports world obviously and under Spanish law you know it is what it is you you can do that and you know I think he has been fired and now there's a campaign to I, I don't know there's just lots of controversy like right now as a culture they are trying to decide is this or is this not okay um, but I think for us as the body of Christ trying to be a community of faith that is healthy and holy then those of us walking into that community having been raised in certain aspects of the dominant culture like as a white woman whiteness is an authentic part of my experience and as a black man like ma masculinity is an authentic part of your experience and so there's going to be certain things that just are going to be normal and appropriate to you that maybe don't feel that way to me and legal is one thing but if we are saying to one another we want to be reconciled and we want to be in a healthy and holy community then if someone says I didn't want you to kiss me the response has to be I'm sorry right like it is enough for me to know that you didn't want that like I, you, I don't have to interrogate your expressed um, desire and I think you know I think we just have to recognize that we cannot, if our willingness to be in a community only extends as far as every single thing we say and do is affirmed, then, then we're not going to be in a radically transformative community because all of us are going to come into the community needing parts of our experience to be interrogated and and needing to do some repentance and I think you know we live in a culture still that's honor shame cancel culture however you want to put it and so I can understand that like outside of the body of Christ people just feel like I can't ever acknowledge that I had a fault because I'll get thrown away like garbage but I mean we need to be in a community that both celebrates repentance and honors it as spiritual fruit that is precious and to be in a culture where people come in like walking in the door knowing that if I stay in this community there are going to be times when I'm the one who needs to do the repentance when I'm the one who says I'm sorry like I hurt you and first of all that makes me feel yucky about myself but second of all and and more importantly I actually care about you and so more than wanting to defend myself and justify myself I want you to know that if your if if your truth is that you were hurt by my actions, that matters to me, and I don't need I don't need anything else than that. I because you're my sibling, you're my brother, you're my sister, and so I don't want to cause you pain, and so I want to be curious, and I know that belonging and worthiness are not at stake, and so you know, and I just think you know that's such a perfect. I mean, not perfect. It's a really obviously regrettable incident, but I do think like things like that just happen and we get stuck in these roles where it's just not safe to tell the truth in the community because I feel like if you tell the truth and say 
this interaction made me uncomfortable, you know that the other person may say like, well, if that's the case, then I don't want to be in a relationship with you. So the cost of relationship, like in that moment, the cost of that celebration being about her accomplishments in sports had to be to just go along and accept this incident that like was not acceptable. And I think, you know, we just have all these ways to justify and rationalize it because we are socialized, especially as women, to think that the most important thing is just not to ever make anybody uncomfortable. And so if something happened to you, like it has to happen, it has to meet a huge threshold of like pain and suffering before people will go like, okay, it's acceptable to me that you made us all uncomfortable by telling the truth. But if, but if what happened to you was not okay, but it really didn't cross the threshold of really mattering in sort of the broader um, community sense or in the perpetrator's eyes, then, then you should just suck it up. Like you're actually the one who's creating the problem by talking about it. You should just, you know, let it be like just, and so anyway, I, but I have just to make, this means too late to be short about it, but I have just been astonished that his defense is it was consensual and, and, you know, so you just are in this alternate, like, so what does consent mean? If one person gets to decide this is consensual and the other person doesn't, then, then everything's consensual because basically anything the powerful person wants becomes, you know, it's just might makes right, which is obviously a foundational concept of so-called civilization. But I will just say the exact inversion of the kingdom of God, where you say that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And those are, you know, those who are strong are supposed to bear with the burdens of the weak, not impose burdens on the weak. So, Well, I have two responses, perhaps three. Uh, first, if while you were speaking, I was imagining myself as this footballer's friend like if I were her friend what what would I say to her as someone who was walking with her as her friend I think the first thing I would say the primary thing I would say is that you are in control you can make the choice of whether to address this or not if you feel like you want to walk away in silence and that feels powerful and safe, do that. If you feel led to speak up and fight, do that. But you get to make that decision. You do, do not let this um, um, cast a permanent shadow over your accomplishment it will cast a temporary shadow and i'm thinking specifically about those um young women who were abused by the gymnastics coach um nasser, nasser yeah and for a while that's all that we were talking about but they they confronted him and all of the news stories came out and then they continued with their careers and had wonderful accomplishments after that. Um, and that, that story became 
something that was in the rearview mirror. I mean, still, of course, pain that they carry, but it wasn't the last word about them. Well, I, I just want to, no, but I also just want to say, like, there's something about that moment when you're getting the medals or the trophy or whatever it is you get for winning the World Cup, which, like, that moment will never come back again to them. And sure. so there's something about saying, like, yes, that's not going to be the defining moment in your life, but, I mean... I don't know. I mean, there's something about, I just feel like it needs to be said that I think that we need to hold one another accountable for like, it's just not that hard to say we should expect grownups in positions of power and authority not to grab one another and Absolutely. kiss one another in the face. And yes. I, but what I'm getting at is, is the conversation I have with myself is that I give myself the freedom yeah. not to address every occasion of racism. Right. I, I don't have to address every situation. I, that would, that would overtake my life yeah. and it would, it would become life denying instead of life affirming. Sure. Right. Sure. And so I would say to this footballer, my friend, you have the choice, right? And you have the choice. A second response was I kept thinking of when you were talking about um, culture, what's appropriate for a culture. I kept thinking about that book that we had to read in seminary, um, one of the Niebuhr's called Christ, Christ in culture, culture, right? Yeah. And so um, uh, the, the premise of the book is that there, there's a place where, you know, Christ is for culture. That is, you know, there, there, are, um, there are things in every culture that uh, reflect, point to the values of the kingdom. And Christ is in some way against every culture. Yeah. There is not a human culture on earth that is in complete alignment with the values of the kingdom. So every culture needs to ask, in what way is Christ against us? And I, I think that that is a that's a that's a conversation we certainly need to have in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think boy I I read I certainly was supposed to have read Christ in Culture in seminary. I do not think. <laughs> I, either I did not understand it at the time or I just didn't have the capacity to really make the, you know, I just remember it being such a convoluted and abstract argument. And then I remember that was like Obama's major theological jam. And I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess I'm just a dummy. Anyway, um, well, yeah, I just think, and, and you're right to draw the intersectional parallel I mean, not that you mean to say that I'm right, but I mean, I think there's just a place to mourn that like, yes, she has a choice, but it's just a crappy choice to have, right? It is. In much the same way that, you know, for you or for other black people or people of color to, to have to live with making the choice about like, am I going to address this or not? I mean, I think that there's just a deep desire and, and we've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but, you know, we just get so... Like this is just the need for hope, as as opposed to optimism. Yeah, well, it goes back to what we how we started this podcast. 
we are being shaped. Right. And to say, I think sometimes we just, we make that choice or we accept the burden of having to make the choice. And it's just like, well, in this world, you always have trouble and this is just going to be the way it is. And so there's really no reason, you know, to engage or that, you know, because it's just the way it is. So go on and accept it and focus on other things. And I think, you know, we've talked before about like, this is part of the problem of the intractability of both, you know, systemic racism and, you know, uh, poverty and in a, in a world of abundance and and lack of housing is because part of it is we just accept like well there's always this problem will always exist therefore it's just a waste of time and energy emotional energy and resources and spiritual energy to even try to attack it we should just sort of accept it as the elephant in the room and then just kind of build that the nicest life that we can on the perim in the perimeters and so I think part of it is just to sort of notice like yes you have a choice and we know for sure that that burden of choice is not one that we were designed to bear and God can meet us in that struggle and glorify the name of Jesus in it but we also have to at least have the capacity to imagine a, a, a life of shalom where people don't have to learn to live with the choice but but to just you know know that this this is not what we were created for not just Jenny Hermosa, but also Luis Rubioso, right? Like there is a way that people of different genders can interact with one another as humans and and to have, anyway, whatever. So um, that's what is astonishing me. Well, I will also say that the double down seems the to be the way. Right. Well, right? it's effective. So no one can apologize because the word on the street is apologizing is weakness. Right. And, and so you yeah. must double down. Right. And because then the conversation doesn't go to the interaction that we all saw, the conversation becomes a theoretical conversation about like, well, what is consent? Right. And then it becomes like, well, you say you didn't consent. I say you did. So we need to hear both sides and who's to say who's right. I mean, and, and we then literally are then once again debating whether or not women have any bodily autonomy because not just when it comes to whether or not you want to bear a child, but also whether or not you want to be grabbed and kissed. Like, Yeah, and, and I know the, the double down is really frustrating for people who um, are looking to um, move the world toward uh, justice and shalom and righteousness but in my heart of hearts, I understand the double down to be um, a thick wall built on a very shaky foundation. That it is, it in 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 the moment, it is it is effective, but it is it, it is a Jericho wall. It, right. it it will not last. It, it just it just will not last. And we are playing the long game here, right? That's right, absolutely. Right, yeah. And I do recognize just the the similarities between someone saying that it was consensual and it was a hundred percent non sexual, and someone saying, "Well, that's not what was in my heart. <laughs> you don't know my heart, right?" It's just this idea of it's just the idea of intent over impact, right? It doesn't matter what happened. It matters what I intended. And you can't hold me responsible for anything that happened without my intention. And anyway, um, so we had one thing that we wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. You teased it last. I know. Um, so you, we got to do podcast. it. Yeah, we and uh, and I think this will be 
it, right? So um, we're, we're thinking about the same thing. Yeah, so do you want to introduce it? Sure. Uh, there was an article written uh, last week or maybe the week before uh, by a pastor in Arlington, Virginia. His name is Alexander Lang. He preached his last Sunday, his last sermon, a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, he was serving a Presbyterian church, uh, well, our denomination. He was serving a church uh, that has a 1,000 members, um, about 500 uh, every Sunday, and um, he preached his last sermon uh, to share with the congregation that um, he was not only leaving that particular congregation, but that he was leaving the ministry altogether. And um, he began uh, the article uh, making reference to what's being called uh, the Great Resignation. That is, we are in a time when lots of pastors are leaving the ministry. Uh, when I entered 20-something years ago, the, the stats were that uh, within the first five years, about 50% of pastors left the ministry. It's much higher now. Uh, there's also a high rate of uh, those who are baby boomers uh, retiring. Um, but... Um, this uh, this pastor, Alexander Lang, sets his leaving the ministry in the context of this great pastoral resignation. Lots of ministers leaving uh, the ministry, uh, many uh, saying because of the, um, uh, the intense stress of the pandemic, uh, the racial reckoning following uh, the murder of George Floyd and the politics of the last administration just kind of created a perfect storm for many pastors, and um, they look for an, an early exit. Um, for others, uh, there's also, uh, and, and Lang mentions this as well, that there is, um, there is um, um, a stacking of roles and um, um, a stress that is, is, that one person cannot carry one one person cannot shoulder that that a pastor these days is expected to be um, a good public speaker a good theologian a good counselor a ceo a financial analyst a recruiter um, uh, um, a social activist and he named a couple other things and it's too much for one person uh, he also now th this i found a bit odd he he names uh poor uh Poor pay. I'm thinking, well, you're serving a thousand member church. I set that aside. Um, so, anyway, the whole article is about why he is leaving the ministry. Now, I have lots of <laughs> feelings uh, about it. Uh, again, I'm referencing one of our colleagues, uh, Albert Moses, who also sent me this article, and he called me and he said, well, what, what do you think is, is wrong with this article? I said, you know, part of the problem, at least the way I see it, is that not once did, let me, hold on, let me say this first. I think he is right about stress and pressure. It's hard to be the church these days. It's hard to be a pastor. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, again, it is very challenging. What I think he missed is that in this 
fairly lengthy article, not one time did he mention faith in Jesus Christ. Not one time did he mention um, the, the, the spirit, the spiritual disciplines, the power from the spirit that really drives ministry is the call to ministry is the work of ministry beyond us as individual men and women absolutely all day every day i am totally 100 percent inadequate therefore i must rely upon the help of god if i do not have that then i am doing ministry in my own strength and i will burn out i will burn out i will burn out that's just how it is and so by the time i got to the end of the article um I was thinking, okay, here is someone who may have understood the work, the task, tasks, plural, but not the, the energy that drives the work. And also, mm-hmm. I, my heart went out to him, um, and I, I didn't bring my notes, but I remember writing the question, does he have any friends? Right, yeah. I, and and I, I, my heart broke for him because I don't know how you live this life because he did mention how isolating and lonely ministry is is it yes but that's why we take a vow to be a friend among our colleagues and um like i talk to you and moses several times a week and when i'm in a bad headspace when i am discouraged in ministry my wife will say Call your friends, yeah. call Moses, call Kate, call your friends, because you always do better when you talk to your friends. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it was just a really interesting article. And I think then there's the secondary lots of people reacting, not just to the article, but to people's responses to the article. So I would just say this, I think, um, you know, as we were just discussing before, like this is his experience and it's his story and he's telling his story and you know, that we, we can't say that it it's wrong. It's, it's how he sees what his he's story. sharing his story about the decision and the understanding, the factors that led him to leave. And so I would say just off the bat, like things have seasons and there's nothing, it's not a failure to leave the ministry after 10 years. And nope. if the Lord is leading you into, you know, a different kind of life of faith, that that's wonderful, honestly. And I think, you know, we, there's nothing, there's nothing tragic about that. Um, I think it's really faithful to say, I thought I would be doing this one kind of thing my whole life. And there's a, there's a bend in the road, (laughs) as Anne of Green Gables would say. And, you know, I'm gonna, I don't know what's next, or what's next is really different than what I thought of like that. That's great. Um, So I think it's, it's great to tell that story. And I think um, it's, you know, he was pretty vulnerable in some ways in telling his story. So I, I, I appreciate that. And um, the one thing that he said that I really, that I, I really personally deeply resonate with is just, um, he talked about, you know, how large his church was and how, you know, of that he knows about half the people really well. And he talked about sort of just the, the, the burden isn't the right word, but just the, the the weight the weight of knowing the stories that that people share their stories with you and it is just a really curious thing because i 
sometimes people's joyful stories make you feel more joyful, but sometimes, but it, but it is more common that when people are sharing their story, maybe with you and no one else, um, that, you know, when people you love are struggling and sad, it's, it's hard to know how to carry that because if you care about them, you're not just like, oh, well, <laughs> but also it's happening to them and not you. And, you know, my experience and, you know, and this is hard to even articulate because it can make you sound really callow, but like my experience is that in, in a way that I can only describe as supernatural, that most of the time I don't feel burdened by the heaviness of people that I really care about who are really struggling and I feel like loving them looks like being sad and anxious and overwhelmed with them, right? I mean, that really feels genuine and yet the Lord won't let me carry it emotionally or spiritually most of the time. Because at the end of the day, you have realized that they are not your people. They right. are the Lord's people. You are not their high priest. They have a high priest. His name is Jesus. Right. He carries it all. You don't. And there's just a, like a really strange kind of in-between space of like, I, you know, we, we have been given this great privilege Absolutely. of like standing in the room with people and it, and it is holy ground. And it's and hard it sometimes. And it, sh and it does shape you. Like it is a weight, but it doesn't, I mean, I do feel like, you know, and I think you and I have both had the experience of, of coming close. I'm not saying he's going off the rails, but for me, I have had the experience of being really close to going off the rails in ministry and just mm -hmm. being crushed. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, my understanding is that the spirit led me into relationships with people who could give me really wise counsel. And one of those people is this mutual friend of ours, Lisa Coons, who I did spiritual direction with for a long time. And, and she said to me early on, and this is not me being critical of him. This is just me saying, here's how his story interacts with mine, right? Um, and and I think it's fair to talk about how our, our stories interact because his story is important and it's unique, but it's not universal. And to say that my orientation and understanding is different than his is not being critical. It's having a conversation. It's not judgment. Right, that's just the point. Like, to, to you, you don't have to agree with someone and everything in order to not stand in judgment against them. So, but... All this to say is like early in, not early, but at significant points in ministry when I was really in danger of being crushed and went into spiritual direction. And, and, you know, our friend Lisa Kuhn said to me, like, you are, you are carrying this wrong. Um, that, that it is not metaphor or poetry when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you are feeling crushed by this, you are in the wrong position. And, and, and I do think that, you know, as much as, you know, he's Presbyterian, so his seminary training is much like ours. And, you know, I think we learn a lot of good tasks. Um, we, we learn how to exegete and we learn how to study the scripture and we learn how to, you know, do pastoral care with competency. And I mean, there, we just learn a lot of tasks, but we, in our tradition, I think that spiritual wisdom is deeply devalued. <laughs> and so... We, we are not trained by pastors. Um, we, we have, I think, a very shallow 
um, we have almost no conversation about what a healthy church looks like. Sometimes we'll talk about what a successful church looks like. We don't even, we don't talk. We have a very shallow conversation if we have a conversation at all about what a faithful church community looks like. And so we're certainly not being taught from the beginning, like, oh, here's what here's what faithfulness looks like. Here's what you can expect. Here's how to stay healthy and minister. Like we're just not taught that. And when we begin to have that conversation, we immediately go to the wells of other disciplines, right? So we'd be like, well, let's go learn from the psychiatrists about how to do self-care. And I'm not knocking that, but I'm just saying like, we are the, <laughs> I mean, to your point, like not to be a jerk about it, but like, yes, where is Jesus in how you're parsing all these out? Cause like stay or go, like I can believe that the Lord will sustain you or lead you in other places. But I just think that as a pastor leading a faith community to have a conversation about vocation and discernment and not talk about where the Lord is in that. Like, I think it's very typical of our Presbyterian culture, which I'm a part of and I'm not renouncing, but I'm just saying like, yeah, we get very uncomfortable having any conversations about spirituality and so, you know, I do, I, I look at that story and I think like, gosh, I mean, that was the kind of church that I aspired to have. And I, I entered into this, like, just with the assumption that you get in seminary, which is like, some of you are excellent. And so if you're excellent, you will get an excellent church and an excellent church is a thousand member church with a big staff. And, you know, that, you know, that's not my path. And I have, you know, the Lord has been working on helping me, you know, really question and get curious about, you know, where those expectations and assumptions came from and, and how are they in any way related to the gospel. Um, but I think, you know, just looking at his, his story and he has like one of the subheadings of the articles, which he might have written the subheading, but he talks about, I had a thousand member churches, so I had a thousand bosses. And so I think like, gosh, I mean, I do feel really clearly that we if we're a shepherd we're a pastor so we're a shepherd so we're called to serve the people in our congregation and so there's just a mutuality and a vulnerability before that but yeah you gotta know that you do not have a thousand bosses you you have one and I think if you feel like I gotta hold on to this job no matter what then yeah you have a thousand bosses yes but but if what you're saying which I think you know, you and I have had to say way earlier than he did, which is like, okay, this life, this vocation has not worked out the way we were told. It looks unlikely that it will ever look the way it's, quote, supposed to look. So are we still doing this? And if so, why? And, and also to really say, I think for a lot of pastors, it's just easy. And this was the other thing Lisa said to me is like, you know, you, you, your, um, you love ministry now more than you love the Lord. Not talking about him, talking about me. Wow. And, and, and I had to look at it and just go like, yeah, I mean, mm. she said, which, and this is true. Like the, you are, you are committed to the gifts of God more than God in this season in your life. And that was like, the best kind of gut punch because when you're desperate enough to be really vulnerable and honest, just realize, Oh, that's true. Like I, I came into this life and it was sacrificial and it was like submitting. (laughs) 
And then when I got into it, I was like, oh my gosh, I was made for this. I love it. Like everything about it delights me. Like I can't imagine ever losing it. And so, so being able to say like, sometimes walking this out in faithfulness means like you will get fired. You will lose. You will not get promoted in the way that you think you should be promoted. And, and being able to say like, okay, that, you know, being raised in sort of the meritocracy that makes me feel like a loser and a failure. But when I, but when the gospel is my primary text, then I know looking like a loser and a failure. I mean, maybe that's because you are unrighteous, but maybe it's not. Yeah. Under that section that you mentioned, you know, where, where he says, I have a thousand bosses. He describes how there was a group of people in the church who were trying to get him kicked out. At first it was kind of this, silent campaign to go to the board and then it when that didn't work it became this you know public um uh, uh public attempt to get him removed and how painful that was and i remember serving a church many many years ago being in a congregational meeting and someone stood up and said we don't like you and no one came to my defense and i remember how painful that was. I mean, I really felt like something on the inside of me shattered into a thousand pieces. And I remember leaving that church and I went home and I sat on my parents' couch for two months. And the um, then um, General Presbyter of Charlotte Presbyter, uh, Charlotte Presbytery, uh, called me or I called him. I, somehow we had a conversation and I told him what happened, and he said, um, Sam said, Yolando, congratulations. <laughs> I was like, what? Have you lost your mind? Did you not hear what I said just happened to me? He said, congratulations. Every pastor worth their weight and salt has been kicked out of at least one church, and that has happened to you fairly early in ministry, and you survived. You're okay. You're right. hurt. Right. But you're okay. Right. And having that voice, that person come alongside at a time when I thought, oh, this might be over forever was so helpful to, to be able to just to reframe what was happening because I was thinking success, I'm going to build. And I looked like a total, I mean, I was 30, base, and I put all my things in storage, basically moved back in with my parents. And I think that is so, um, that that's such a word for the church right now. Right. Because we feel like we're failing, people are leaving, we're the young people, nothing's happening. We look like suckers when the rest of the world is moving on to something else. Oh, wait. Like when I am leaving my house on Sunday morning, many of my neighbors are cutting their grass, right? It's mm -hmm. like, oh, you, you still, you, you're still doing that, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I just think that it's really important to, to find this way of, cause you know, I think that the, the unhealthy reaction to that is just to harden your heart and get to a place of like, I don't care. Correct. Like, you know. F them if they don't like what I'm doing. I'm I'm the Lord's anointed and I, you know, and it's it's finding this, you know, it's rejecting that dual thinking of, you know, because I definitely, definitely came into ministry 
a hundred percent believing that if I was being faithful and doing my job and working hard, and if I was called to this life, then everyone in my congregation would like me. And if everyone in my congregation didn't like me, then I was not, you know, I wasn't holy enough. I wasn't loving enough. I wasn't working hard enough. Right. And so I just, you know, the idea that you could be faithful and people in your congregation would not thank you for it. Like I just couldn't, I, I that you literally could be faithful and look like a failure. Right. And That's I just, the reframe I for could the not today. conceive of it. And so, I mean, sometimes people in your church don't like you for good reason, right? Like, I, I mean, it's just not ever one thing or another. About me no, I'm not. I'm just saying like, it can't be like, I, because I'm saying like, I know pastors who are like, I can't do anything in, unless the congregation approves or pastors who say, I don't care what, how the congregation thinks Correct. or feels, I, you know, and so it's, it's being in that middle space and being open and saying like, I love these people and I'm, I'm walking with the real vulnerability of like constantly questioning it, you know, is this you Lord? Is this me Lord? Like, but, but also, so not hardening my heart to them, but also knowing ultimately I am walking as a disciple of Jesus. And so at the end of the day, I may or may not be a pastor. I may or may not have a paying job. I'm not entitled to any of that. Like I do think the thing that is killing us in the Peace USA right now, and I mean, this has got nuance, but one of the things that's killing us is our entitlement. Like our sense of like, oh, well, if I'm a pastor, I deserve full-time work with benefits and a pension and a sabbatical every seven years because this is what this is what pastors get. And, and if, if that isn't happening for me, then, you know, some evil has been perpetrated against me. And I just think the reality is, I mean, there are justice issues and there are equity. And I think that everyone should be able to live, you know, with dignity throughout their lives and, and, and certainly in old age. And so I'm, I'm for pensions and sabbaticals and healthcare and all that stuff. But I also just think if we look at Jesus and if, and if he is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, then we have to sort of both be committed to the idea of, of justice and equity and interrogate our own sense of entitlement, right? Because, I mean, I think part of the job as a pastor in some of these congregations, well, in all congregations, is to lovingly help the church members look at their own culture and say, yes, we've always done it this way. Yes, this seems right to us. Yes, this seems reasonable and comfortable to us. But But is this faithful? And so I think you know, if, if people in the congregation had certain expectations of a pastor, we need to be brave and bold enough before we conform to them to really, you know, line them up and uh, against the gospel and say, sometimes being faithful does mean without taking any glee in it does mean disappointing people and making people uncomfortable and, sitting in the tension and having healthy conflict. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I, hate, I just can't tell you how much I hate it, but there's no other way to flourish in this life unless you're really constantly having a healthy detachment from it. So, I mean, I kudos to him because one way or another, I, I think he is naming that like a lot of our expectations are not, they're not healthy. And I think he understood that, this life of pastoring was not healthy for him and that God doesn't sacrifice individuals for institutions ever. And so I think the Lord will do a lot of good 
out of this and having this conversation is really good. And I also think, you know, I think the one thing that makes me uncomfortable about the article or that I think is worth noting is that, you know, he was the pastor of the congregation for 10 years. And, and so when you're describing the culture of the congregation, it can't be a them thing. It has to be a we thing. Mm -hmm. And like, when you show up and you pick a church because it is a certain way and because you want all the things that that church promises you. And then you're, you're not a, you're, you're not a victim. You can say, I signed up for this. I discovered it was unhealthy. I'm walking away. But I mean, you were literally, you, you were ridiculously in charge. You can't change everything, but you, you do get to decide how you're going to show up every day and like kudos to him because he decided well I'm not and I and I think that's fine like I do think some of these systems are really really unhealthy and people just need to say I'm not going to do it like it's not worth it I'm not sacrificing my life with God and my family and my emotional health this is my one life and this isn't the only way to follow Jesus and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna let it go so anyway, and Yolanda's been giving me the wrap it up sign, so I'm going to wrap it up. <laughs> I just feel like you're, you're wrapping it up and I'm just getting started. I'm going to buy a neon sign. But, wrap it up. But only one of us <laughs> preached for 36 minutes on Sunday morning. That would be the introvert, which yeah, is odd. I know. Wasn't me. Well, wasn't me. <laughs> um, and isn't finished and is going back to the same text this next Sunday, which I love for you and your people. Um well, thank you all for listening. And uh, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, uh, you can go to the website, which is deridachurch.com. You can go to the podcast, which is on the Podbean website, the Derida Church podcast, and just find lots of Yolando's past and present uh, messages, including uh, this Sunday's 36-minute treat. Which is true. Are you making I, fun of no, me? No, I'm are, jealous. You are making fun I of am, me. I am. It is all like you serve deep, healthy bread, right? Like I, I threw out some cream puffs, but you are serving Stop like multi-grain, like sprouted Ezekiel bread. Ezekiel bread. You can find it all. Um, or their website, uh, or I'm sorry, or their YouTube channel where you can see um, the sermon as well. And if you want to find out more about what is happening at God's Church, the Grove Presbyterian Church, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast, or our YouTube channel. Uh, look for the green tree. And you can worship at Derida Pres if you are in the Charlotte area at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. And you can worship at the Grove at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You probably can't do both, though, because... You, you, well, maybe you could, you could start at the Grove and then at the end of the Grove service, they could probably still come over and make all of your message, right? That could happen. No. Yes. That's cold. <laughs> you could go saying. to the Grove service and stream the ride of church That's service. Right. You can, you can, yes. AirPods. You can be a, a, a bigamous church member. <laughs> you can have, right. I'm going to stop because this is just past the point of sense. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>